Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 2. This morning we'll consider verses 8 through 17. Provision and responsibility. Genesis 2, verses 8 through 17. Mankind, an abundantly blessed creation of God, has a responsibility to reverently obey and serve the Creator within the boundaries that are set up by the Creator. This section of Genesis is a literary unit that runs from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4. It's the first of what we're calling the Toledot, Toledot sections around which Genesis is organized. In verses 4 through 7, we learn that Adam, having had life breathed into him by God himself, is a unique and special aspect of God's creation. This morning, in verses 8 through 17, we will observe that this unique aspect of God's creation called mankind was given abundant, abundant provision by God, but also the responsibility to reverently and obediently serve the one who created him. So there are two key words in our passage today, provision and responsibility. Our passage this morning can be nicely broken down into two different parts, and this is how we'll study it. The first part, verses 8 through 14, God blessed Adam with abundant, abundant provision. Not just what he needed, but even way over and above what he needed. And second, the second section in verses 15 through 17, man has the responsibility to obey and to serve the Creator. These two form one unit. God blessed Adam with abundant provision and man has the responsibility to obey and to serve the Creator. Now, one would think, I would think, that the second of those two propositions is self-evident and really doesn't need to be explicitly stated. Of course we have the responsibility to obey and to serve the Creator. We're the creation. It would make sense that creation has a responsibility to serve the Creator. But that's hardly the case that it doesn't need to be stated, that it's always self-evident. For we know, even before we get to the passage, because you've been Christians for a long time, I'm sure, that Adam demonstrated his gratitude for the abundant provision that God had given him in rebellion and in disobedience. So maybe it's not that self-evident that just because God has created us, given us life, and blessed us abundantly, that then we have the responsibility to serve him. Now, not to pay him back for anything, but we have the resp- because we can never do that, but the responsibility to serve And obey. So we know that Adam disobeyed almost immediately. That's how he expressed his gratitude toward God. We also know that we too have demonstrated our gratitude, or more specifically our lack of gratitude, by rebellion and disobedience just like Adam did. So maybe it's not so self-evident that just because God has created us, blessed us with life, and given us everything that we need, that we have a responsibility to obey him and to serve him. Because not only did Adam rebel, we rebel all the time, all these, uh, all these years as well. So as we consider, as we carefully consider Adam's ingratitude and the way it was expressed in rebellion over the next several lessons in Genesis, let us not forget our own. This, this shouldn't be target practice that we take at Adam. This should be a reflection in the the mirror of Adam that we see ourselves. Why is it? Why is it that God has blessed me so much with so many things? Why is it that in spite of that blessing, 
I and everybody else in this room continue to rebel against God on a regular basis. And by the rebellion, I'm speaking of sin. Why do we continue to do that in spite of the fact that we have been blessed greatly? It's my desire that this study will motivate all of us, all of us, to treat our Creator with the love and the, with the respect that He deserves. He did, after all, give life to each one of us. Didn't He? He did, He has, after all, provided with us, uh, provided for us everything that we need to obey Him and to serve Him. Everything that we need has been provided graciously by God for us. And, of course, the coup de grace, He did, after all, Provide for our eternal salvation by the sacrificial death of his son on the cross. For the life of me, I can't figure out why any of us sin. Well, I guess I can. We have this sin nature that we fall back on. Well, it was just, that's just my flesh making me do that. But the flesh can't make you sin. It can't make me sin. The flesh can encourage me. The flesh can tempt me. But I still have to decide to sin. Why do I do that? Why do you do it? Why do we all do it? We're all in the same boat. Why do we do that? in spite of all these incredible blessings that God has given us. It doesn't make sense. The Baptist pastor Robert Robinson, who ministered in Cambridge, England about 200 years ago, put into words the struggle that we all face on a daily basis. And you've sung these before. Perhaps you weren't thinking of this when you sung, sung them, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy Courts above, come thy found, of course. Prone to wander. He felt it too. He knew he shouldn't, but he felt it too. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. There's just something in me. I know I'm doing the wrong thing in spite of all the blessings that's come my way. And I appreciate Robinson's honesty. I appreciate his transparency because we all feel that way from time to time, at least if you have any, any sensitivity toward your walk with God at all. You'll feel that way from time to time. Lord, why am I doing this? In spite of everything that you've done for me, why am I doing this? With all that's been done for us, you'd think that following him in committed discipleship would be a foregone conclusion for us. But too often, it's not. Well, let's look at the verses 8 through 14. God blessed Adam with abundant provision. And the Lord God planted, or some of your Bibles will read, had planted, and that's legitimate, and the Lord God had planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord, caused, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and that gold of the land is good, and the bedellum and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, it flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. This section begins with a description of the incredible, outstanding, abundant provision that God made for Adam. This was truly perfect environment. Not just what he needed, but everything he could have ever wanted was there as well. The Garden of Eden. We all, we all seem to want to get back to the Garden of Eden. Well, he was there. That's what he was created in. 
I assume, although the text doesn't say, I assume there was a perfect temperature in the Garden of Eden. I know there was a perfect humidity in the Garden of Eden. I, I don't know anything else, but if it was perfect, there had to be those things too. Now, I don't know what that perfect temperature was, but considering our temperatures lately, I, I can, I'm just guessing it wasn't 104 with 90% humidity. I bet it was a little less than that, but whatever it was, it was perfect. He had perfect provision. He couldn't complain about anything. Well, sometimes we do that. God gives us a car, and then we say, why in the world didn't he give us this other kind of car? He gives us a home. and said, why can't I live in that neighborhood? He, he makes our legs healthy. He said, well, why can't my ears be healthy? You know what I mean? We, we don't ever seem to be satisfied with what he gives us. Well, Adam couldn't even complain. It was perfection. I don't know if the temperature ever varied there, but that's beyond the point. It was perfection. It was absolute perfection. But the emphasis quickly shifts away from that perfection and the provision really to, to one tree. Actually, actually, there's two trees that it shifts to in, in, verse, in verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight, good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. So we have this comparison and contrast almost immediately. The tree of life, that's the good one. The tree of the knowledge of, the, of good and evil, and that's going to be the problem. There's one tree in specific, really, that's going to be the issue from here on into chapter 3 as well. And that's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We learn from this text, and on into our next section, that to eat from this particular tree would bring the knowledge or the experience, if you will, of good and evil, and with it, death. Eating from that tree, partaking from that tree, would bring the knowledge or the experience of good and evil, but at the same time, it was going to bring with it death. And we'll have to study this idea of death in some depth as we get into the passage itself, because there's a lot to this idea. What happens to Adam when he dies? So he, dies he begins to die physically, but there's more to it than just that. There's a spiritual aspect of Adam's death as well, and we'll see that as we go. Eating from the tree or failure with regard to this one free will moral choice. Did you see that? He really only gives him one free will moral choice. He doesn't have to learn a whole list of things that he was supposed to do or not to do. Just one. Everything you want. It's, it's all yours. Everything you want is yours for the taking, except this one deal. And people will say, well, why in the world could God, why would he do that? Well, he's God. He has a right to set the boundaries. So I'm not going to answer the question as to why. But he set the boundaries, and he has a right to set the boundaries. We'll see more on that as we go through. So there was this one free will moral choice that had to be made. Now, we need to be careful here, because the, to violate this one free will moral choice would not introduce evil into the universe. That had already been done. Satan had made his free will moral choice a long time before, and that introduced evil into the universe. But this one free will moral choice that Adam will make, and he'll make it in the negative, we all know what happens in Genesis 3. I, I trust that you do. I don't want to spoil the ending of the story to you, but he fails. <laughs> he doesn't do it. That, that will introduce evil into this aspect of God's creation. But we need to understand that evil was already out there. God didn't create it. And that's, that's one of the major issues that we need to consider when we consider this part of Genesis. God did not create evil. You know, there's this, there's this syllogism that, that's out there 
Uh, everything that is created, God created. Evil is a created thing, therefore God created evil. Well, that's, it, it falls apart. God didn't create evil. Evil is not a created thing, at least not by God. Evil is a perversion of a good thing. See, Satan is the one that created evil by his disobedience and introduced it into the universe. Adam created evil by his disobedience and introduced into this aspect of the universe that, that we call earth. God's creation created evil by misusing the free will that he had given us. Evil is not a separate entity in and of itself in that sense. Good is the entity. Evil is a perversion of something that was good. That's how we'll define evil in this study. So evil by definition, evil by definition is a perversion of that which is good or good. Good is that which flows from the infinite perfections of God. Good doesn't exist independently of God. That's kind of an old Greek philosophical idea, that there was the good out there, and then there was the, what, what their idea of God would be, and, it's, and it was separated. That's not true either. Good is that which flows forth from the eternal, infinite, perfect God. It doesn't exist separately from God. And God did not create evil. A good God could not create evil. The perversion of good came originally, Originally from Satan's use of his own God-given free will to rebel against his creator. And we scratch our heads about that. How could he do that? Having access to the throne room of God, how in the world would he be that blessed and rebel against God? But we're going to see it play out all over again. In Genesis chapter 3, the same thing happens. Adam, a creature right straight from the hand of God, blessed abundantly by God in perfect environment, rebels against God. And then that has played out in every generation of human history since then, including our own, including with me. It's not testimony time today. That's all you're going to get, including with me. <laughs> in case you're wondering, is he going to go further? No, I'm not. <laughs> but including you as well. And you don't get to get up and give your testimony either. That would just uh, set us all back a few years, I'm afraid. <laughs> Satan is the author of sin and evil in the angelic realm. Adam holds that distinction in the human realm. We'll have a whole lot more to say about the idea of good and evil in the coming weeks, but we at least need to introduce it this morning. The description of the tree is then followed by an extended description of four rivers that flow out from one and the precious gems and gold that were found in the regions of these rivers. As, as I was looking at this, and every time I studied Genesis, I wonder why so much time spent here. Why would, we, why would Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spend so much time explaining these things with regard to the river? It almost seems like a, a parenthesis that is obstructive rather than help, helpful to the flow of this narrative. But it's not. There's a good reason why God would bother telling us about these rivers and the precious metals and the, and the, and the gems and so forth. Well, the peoples of the ancient world would have been very familiar with at least two of these rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Their agricultural economies were centered around these rivers. Their cities were built upon these rivers, and, and they were considered to be a, a vital part of their agricultural and hence their, their whole economy. And not, not just there, but anywhere in the world where, where there was a river, where there was water, there could be life. There, if there's no water, there's no life. Especially in that part of the world, we have water that we can just go turn on the faucet and we don't, we don't look at it that way today. 
But back then, and, and even in the early part of our country, you see that cities grew up around rivers, around oceans, around springs, around lakes. You have to have water. So the peoples of the world would have been very familiar with at least two of these rivers that are mentioned. And they knew how important they were to their economies. And, and so Moses understood this. The Holy Spirit certainly understood it, working through Moses. And so he brings, he brings in a tie with what's going on here and the contemporary audience and their own economy. There is a tie-in between these two. These rivers, which were important to Moses' original audience, had their origin with the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. That's where these rivers came from. You, you're so grateful for the Tigris, and you're so grateful for the Euphrates people of the ancient uh, Near and Middle East. Well, if you're grateful for that, understand that those rivers had their origin with the God of creation, the God of the universe. They didn't just get there. Klaus Westermann, an Old Testament scholar of a past generation, extremely well-respected, explains the inclusion of this material by saying this, the purpose is to state that the rivers which bring fertility or blessing to the world have their origin in the river that brings fertility to the garden of God. The purpose is to state that the rivers which bring fertility or blessing to the world have their origin in the river which brings fertility to the garden of God. Can I put it this way? The very same river that brought the fertility to the garden of Eden then splits off and brings fertility to the rest of the world. Verses 15 through 17. Now we've seen there's abundant provision. Garden of Eden. You've got everything that you need, including precious water, which would have been especially an especially important commodity in that time of history. In all times, actually, even today it's precious. We just don't put enough emphasis on it. But we've seen all that. So Adam was blessed greatly by God. So what? That's nice. So Adam was blessed greatly by God. So what? That which is created has a responsibility, a responsibility to reverently obey and to serve the Creator. Now that's, that's you and me too. We're that which was created. We have a responsibility to reverently serve and obey the Creator. Then the Lord God put or placed him in the garden. The Hebrew word translated put or placed here is actually from the Hebrew term that means rest. And the choice of that particular word has overtones that are very, very important. In Psalm 95, a cognate form of this verb is used for rest that would take place in the promised land. Rest that would take place in the promised land. See, the promised land was supposed to be a place of blessing. Now we see where Moses might be going under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, where Moses might be going by using this term. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden, or placed him into the garden. The garden was supposed to be a place of blessing, a a, a place of rest, to use that Old Testament term. Now the term nuha does not imply a lack of activity. We often think that way when we think of rest. I'm going to go home and just rest. When I go home and I'm going to rest, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch a ball game, I'm going to read a book, I'm going to have some iced tea, I'm going to get out of the heat, I'm going to prop my feet up. I'm not going to do hardly anything. I guess watching a ball game or reading a book is something, but it certainly doesn't involve any 
work outside or anything else. That's what I would mean by rest. But that's not really the biblical concept of rest. Biblical concept of rest includes blessing. And you can be in a period of rest which includes blessing and actually doing something too. You can be working in the yard or or working on a case or doing somebody's taxes or whatever it may be, preparing a lesson for your students and still be under this category of rest the way that it's, that it's used biblically. So the term nuah does not imply a lack of activity, but it does set up a contrast with what will come after the fall. There will be, sometimes we get this mixed up, there will be reverent service and worship in the garden. And, and can I say work? There will be work in the garden, as we'll see in a moment. But that service, that work, that worship, that obedience was not intended, at least in its original sense, to be burdensome. We, we, can, we almost make as synonyms the word work and burden. Well, it wasn't designed to be that way. That's the way it is now in many cases. But it wasn't designed to be that way. Reverent service... And worship was intended to be pleasurable. That was the intention. That's the way God designed it. It was never designed to be a weight upon us. After the fall, of course, that changes. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 3. That which was intended to be pure pleasure will become something that is done by the sweat of the brow. But as we'll see when we get to Genesis chapter 3, in case you don't want to depress you this morning, when we see when we get to Genesis chapter 3, the effects of the fall are a reality. But the effects of the fall can be softened when one becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. They won't be removed until we get to heaven. But the effects of the fall can be softened by our relationship with Jesus Christ. Softened. They will be, the effects of the fall will be completely removed when we get to heaven. But they can be softened. The two infinitives that conclude verse 15 are, are really important. Let's look at them. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden. And again, the Garden of Eden, by use of that verb, in that way, is intended to be a place of blessing. So this is a good thing. And he puts him there for a purpose. And that purpose is outlined by the use of two infinitives. Infinitives are something that has to go, to eat, uh, and so forth. The word to in front of it. And you see them here. To cultivate it and to keep it. Both infinitives. To cultivate it and to keep it. To cultivate it, also translated to serve it, avad, means to work, to labor, to serve, to worship. You see, in the Garden of Eden, there was a close connection between worship and work. Again, today we look at one, we work at worship as hopefully a pleasure, work as a burden. Originally, our work was intended to be a part of our worship. And it still can be, by the way. This is, this is where it all starts off. It shouldn't be we have our work life and then we have our worship life. We worship on Sunday morning from 10.30 to 11.30, 11.45, and then we go to work. We have our worship personality, and then we have our work personality. We've got our worship vocabulary, and then we have our worship vocabulary. It's not supposed to be that way, at least not originally intended. What you do for work was originally intended to be an aspect of worship. And that's why I think when we get to heaven, 
we're all interested in this. I know when we get to heaven, and there will be work in heaven, but it's not going to be work like you and I think about work right now. It's going to be work like it was supposed to be in the garden in the first place, which is entirely pleasurable. When we worship and we get to heaven, yes, there will be times when we get together and sing. The scriptures mention those times. And we'll get together and sing hymns. And when, when pastors tell you, and it's the truth, that we'll spend eternity worshiping God. I know that that has depressed some Christians. Because, because they think, oh my goodness. Am I, is it going to be like Sunday morning for eternity? I'm going to rethink this. Now don't tell me if you think that. It would depress me. But listen, in eternity, everything that we do is an aspect of worship. So when the Bible tells us that we're going to worship Him forever, but yet still we're going to be in a place of no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death, the pain that's sometimes associated with worship on earth, because we're in our flesh and we, sometimes we just are not focused on the Lord like we should be, that will never be a part of heaven. So yes, you will work in heaven. Yes, you will worship in heaven. And yes, it will be entirely pleasurable 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, although there won't be that unit of measurement in heaven. In whatever measurement of time that there is, because time is just a sequence of events, then it will be pleasurable the entirety of it for eternity. And that's the way that it was designed. Sin is going to have tremendous impact on us. A tremendous impact on Adam. Never sell it short. Genesis chapter 3 is arguably the most important chapter in the Bible. Or arguably. Now, there's, there are other many important ones. It's all the Word of God. But in terms of understanding why the way things are the way they are, Genesis chapter 3 is enormously important. To cultivate it, avad, to keep it, shamar, means to keep, to guard, to care for. To keep, to guard, to care for. Now, when you put these two terms together... It was, it was almost the Hebrew way of saying spiritual service. Spiritual service. That's why Adam was placed in the garden, for spiritual service. Now, you can call it worship. You can call it labor if you'd like to. But when you put the two terms together, spiritual service is the best way to put it. Alan Ross, another Old Testament, very well-respected Old Testament scholar, writes this, Whatever the activity man was to engage in in the garden... And he says, there's no reason to doubt that physical activity was involved. Work was involved in the garden. It was described in terms of spiritual service to the Lord. Now, if we could just get that now, if we could just understand that if we're walking in fellowship with God, whatever it is you do, whatever it is, and I won't start mentioning professions because I'll leave something out, but whatever it is you do, whether you're actively working, whether you're retired, whether you care for someone in the home, whether you're a a homemaker and a mother, which is the most important of all the, the uh, professions on the planet, whatever it is you do, that is an aspect of your worship. So maybe you might look at it a little differently when, when something comes up with the kids, and it's maybe a little bit aggravating. I mean, I've got to do that again. Or maybe when you're not getting any sleep at night because one of them is sick, when you realize that you're worshiping God by getting up and taking care of that child by following the love that God's put in your heart anyway and not rebelling against that, then things are going to be a lot easier for you. When you realize that whatever it is that you do, that is a part of your worship, it was designed that way as a believer, it's a part of your worship, hopefully it'll be a little bit easier. You know, we were created to serve. Jesus said that too in his first advent. He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. 
We were created to serve, but don't miss this next part. This is probably the most crucial thing I'll say this morning. We were created to serve and worship within a context that is determined by the Creator. We were created to serve and worship within a context, may I say within boundaries, if you will. And those boundaries were determined by the one that created us. Now this is huge. Throughout human history, and especially in our day, many attempt to serve and worship God. And I'm talking about Christians now. Many attempt to serve and worship God, but they want to do it on their terms, not on God's terms. They want to set the boundaries. They're not interested in what God's boundaries were. For example, I'll just give you a couple so you know what I'm, what I'm talking about here. The scriptures say, God says, that we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. That's what God says. As a believer, you have the responsibility to obey that. Now, you don't have to come to this church, and this is not an advertisement for that. Please don't think of that. But you have the responsibility to attend and assemble together with other believers. That's what God says. But others say, and I've heard this said, I can worship at home just as well as I can worship at church. I'm not going to associate myself with a local assembly. They have all kinds of different reasons for saying that. You know, they may say, well, I, don't, I, don't, I can't find a church that teaches the Word. And that's, in some parts of the world, that's true. It's not true here, though. It's certainly not true if you live in Houston. There are plenty of worship opportunities for you here. They may say that, what I hear more commonly, I don't like the people at that church. Well, maybe they don't like you either. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I never forget when Zig Ziglar, who was a Sunday school teacher at Zig Ziglar, the insurance salesman, the motivational speaker, most of you have heard his name. Great Christian man. He was a Sunday school teacher at First Baptist up in Dallas. And he was talking to this one man, inviting him to church. He said, I don't want to go to First Baptist. Nothing but a bunch of hypocrites there. And Zig, Zig just shot right back. He said, well, come on now. We could use one more then. <laughs> yeah, we're all a bunch of hypocrites, just like that Harper Valley PTA song. But, but God loves us. <laughs> and he tells us not to forsake. So how silly it is for God to set these boundaries. That's what I mean by context. God says you're supposed to serve me and you're supposed to worship me. And he set these boundaries. He set the context. And too many people say, well, I know that's what he said, but that's not what I'm going to do. Now, again, there's some of you, some of you live in certain parts of the world, I know, where there aren't, uh, where there aren't worship opportunities available to you. And you've got to do the best that you can with, those, with, with whatever you have to work with. But it needs, that's the exception. It's not the rule. That's the exception not the rule. Other, this, there's another, this is another big one, at least in our culture. God says in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, here are the qualifications that I am setting forward, that I prescribe, God says, for the one that would hold the office of elder, pastor, bishop. These are the qualifications that I set forward. These are the boundaries that I set forward. But I've heard others say, other people who, are, who ought to know better, I know that's what 1 Timothy and Titus say. I understand that. But I'm going to overlook these things because this particular fellow is such a great Bible teacher that I'm not, I'm not going to go by what that says. I'm going to go by what this says. Listen, if he's that great a Bible teacher, he would have told you not to overlook it. I'm sorry, that's what he would have told you. you that's, that's primatism to the max. We have to worship 
And I want to give you these two examples. I could give you more, but I don't want to get you off track. I can see these two already have. But don't take nothing personal. There are boundaries. There are boundaries. There are contexts that are set for the worship of God, and God's the one that set them. So we have this responsibility to reverently obey and to serve and to worship, and then God sets the context or the boundaries of that worship, and we're supposed to do it his way. Now, there's a whole chapter on this, basically a whole chapter, and that's going to come in chapter 4. We have Cain and Abel, and you're going to see that one worships within the boundaries and the context well, and the other one really doesn't. And everybody wonders, why in the world is Cain's offering not accepted? We'll see. And I think partially it's because he... He was doing something that was not the prescribed way of worshiping. And, and of course, there are other things, too. I was not going to say, but I will. There, there's this big fight over, over do we do contemporary music, do we do traditional music? Should we wear a coat and tie, or should we wear, should we wear a, a turtleneck? Uh, what should the pastor wear? There's one church in town, and it's a huge church, a huge, very, very wealthy church, where the most popular preacher at that church wears blue jeans and no shoes, barefooted. Now, I don't think that's worshiping within the boundaries. Now, I don't care if you wear a coat and tie or if you wear a T-shirt to church. I really don't care. All I'm saying is if you're wearing a T-shirt, then pull the best one out of your drawer that you have. I don't, I don't care if you wear sandals. But if you're going to wear sandals, pull the best pair of sandals out of your drawer that you have. My, um, my brother, I'll go ahead and say it. My brother goes to a church in, in Atlanta, a very, very big church. He loves the church. And, and, uh, but there's one thing he doesn't like about the church. It's a well-known, so I won't say who the pastor is. But the one thing he doesn't like, it's a lot of really wealthy people to go to this church. A lot of wealthy yuppies to hear him describe them. And he says it's as if they try to see how lousy each one of them can dress. Now that's, I'm sorry, but that's not within the context of what God put, put together. It's not so much what you are, it's are you bringing your best. Whatever it is, bring the best that you've got. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. So it doesn't matter if you wear a tie. It doesn't matter what color your tie is. But it does matter, are you bringing your best? And that doesn't just include clothing. That includes the best you that day. Did you get enough sleep last night to where you could stay awake in church today? You know, that's part of bringing your best. You know, did, hey, did you take your vitamins all week so that you'd be healthy enough to come to church today? That's part of bringing your best. So there's these contexts that we were created to serve, but we were created to serve and worship within a context that is determined by the Creator. And what I mean by that, where we get that from, he, he said, you can do whatever you want to. In the context of this service and worship of me, whatever you want, there, were great, there was great latitude. I guess with Adam, he didn't care if he came to worship him with shoes on or not shoes. He wouldn't care. There's only one thing, though, he said. Now, with Adam, the, the context was, was pretty broad. Only one thing, don't touch that tree. Or actually, don't eat from that tree. Eve's going to switch and say, don't touch it. Don't eat from that tree. And Adam couldn't do it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't serve within the boundaries. And they're pretty simple boundaries, weren't they? And I think they are today as well. Pretty simple boundaries. God sets the terms. He sets the terms for service and worship that honors him. We can't just do that. God's the creator. And too many people do it. They say, I'm going to worship God in my way. Thank you very much. Well, no, thank you very much. You worship God in his way. Now, and granted, there are a lot, there's a, even today, where I said there's a lot of latitude in the ground, there's a lot of latitude today. And this is not a condemnation, believe it or not, this is not a condemnation of those who worship in a contemporary manner. As long as they're worshiping with all their heart and they're bringing their best. If it's going to be contemporary, bring your best. 
If it's going to be traditional, bring your best. If it's going to be an organ, bring the best. If it's going to be a guitar, bring the best. That's all. The, that's that's the primary point. Not what not what particular song is sung, but how well is it sung, and how how intense how intense is the worship of the people that are singing that song. Well. We better move on. In verses 16 and 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now, these are the boundaries about which I just spoke. I was introducing it there. Here are the boundaries. This is what he... And it's a pretty simple set of boundaries, I think. Sometimes... When we study Genesis, we look at these two verses and we separate them out from the immediate context. And that's where we make mistakes. These, this prohibition is set within the context of Adam's responsibility for spiritual service. And we talk, the, the examples I gave you a moment ago are within the local church. But when we expand spiritual service out, then there are boundaries there as well. In a sense, there, there is a sense in which the marriage relationship that many of you are in right now is, is an aspect of worship. And all of us, I hope, all of us understand that God has set forth certain boundaries for the enjoyment of the institution of marriage and so that marriage as an institution of worship will function well. Don't, don't we all know that? Now, how silly would it be how silly is it when people do this? It's not a theoretical issue. How silly it is when believers say, okay, I know God set boundaries on the way that I'm to worship within marriage, and that boundary had to do with uh, love between a man and a woman, but you know what? I, I'm really growing rather fond of uh, that secretary at work. And, you know, the other day she, she prayed with me, you know, and, and she listened to me. You know, she listens to me when I tell her my stories. You've heard these before, yeah. She, li- you know, she listens to me carefully, and she pays attention to me. Of course, now you're forgetting that you're paying her to pay attention to you. <laughs> you know. well, let's just be brutally honest here. You know, she's paying attention to you because you're paying her to. You're not paying your wife to pay attention to you. <laughs> she needs to love you. That's why she does it. But... But how, how silly, we look at that and we say, how silly are you? How in the world did you think that that kind of relationship was going to honor God? Or we may say, in the middle of work, we, we know that there are certain boundaries. Let's say you own a business. And you're a Christian, you own that business. And that, that work is now worship. I hope we see that now. When you're, when you're doing that work, it's an aspect of worship but there are certain boundaries that God's placed on that as well. You need to do your work honestly with integrity, not cheating anybody. We would call a, we would call a Christian who knowingly cheats his customers at work. We would say that person is stepping outside the bounds. Don't think you're worshiping God with your work if you're cheating your customers. Do you see the point? So there are contexts and there are boundaries for reverent service and obedient worship. But don't think that those boundaries are just limited to what happens on Sunday morning. God set them in a broader way. Now, these are the two verses that say what the boundaries were. And again, these are part of 
the context for spiritual service and worship. Yes, this is a free will moral choice that will be set forth here. But it's, that's not all it is. It's the boundaries for how we're to worship. At least it sets the precedent for boundaries being there. So we can't look at these verses as though they were totally separated from their context. Yes, first and foremost, there's a moral boundary that's set up for Adam. There was, there was, one, there was one prohibition, and that's very clear. But at the same time that he set that moral boundary, he set it in the context of spiritual service. So here are the terms. To summarize this up and to close this up today, all earthly goods and pleasure, Adam, are at your disposal. Everything here is at your disposal, except for this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. As long as you live and function within those boundaries, you're going to be fine. Those are pretty generous boundaries, God would have probably told Adam. Eat to your heart's content. Enjoy yourselves. But maintain that enjoyment within the context that I've set up. Oh, and by the way, there is a consequence for disobedience. You shall surely die. Mot tamut. You're definitely going to die. No doubt about it. You do this, you're going to die. It's not like when you tell your kids, listen, if you don't clean your room, you're not going to go out and play this afternoon. And then you go look in the room, it's not clean. You say, well, go ahead and play. I'll, I'll clean it up. We'll do it tomorrow. That's not how God does it. You're surely going to die. If you disobey, Adam, mot tamut, you're definitely going to die. That's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Obey me and I'll bless you. Disobey me and you're in big trouble. That started in the garden. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 as a summary of the Mosaic law. And we also can see that as a summary of New Testament teaching as well. It started that way. It's going to end that way. Obey me. Do what I tell you to. I've given you all this abundant blessing, not just to Adam, but us. We have been given an abundance. But God says, listen, you need to live out that abundance and enjoy that abundance within the context that I've given you. You do that. You walk in fellowship with me. You obey me. The way Jesus put it, show me that you love me by obeying me. You obey me and everything's going to be fine. Your life's going to be a pleasure. Now, there may be suffering that comes into it, but even then you're going to be able to handle it. Disobey me, though, and you're in big trouble. I usually believe my parents because <laughs> they followed up, but I know sometimes kids don't believe their parents. And they say, don't do this, or and you do do this, don't do that. If you, if you disobey me, then there will be consequences to pay. You know, the best parents, the best parents follow through on whatever they said that it, the consequences would be. And that's the best human parents. The perfect parent, God the Father, is going to follow through. Adam might not have believed him, but he was mistaken. Mankind, an abundantly blessed creation of God, has a responsibility to reverently obey and serve the Creator within the boundaries that have been set by the Creator. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful 
so thankful that you have created us. We're so thankful that you have blessed us with, with everything that we need to serve you. You've given us life. You've given us energy. You've given us opportunity to serve you and to worship you. We thank you for that. But this morning, Father, we thank you most of all for our so great salvation that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who, who has not enjoyed that salvation, that they would realize that you love them so much, that you deeply love them, and, you, and because of that love you sent your Son to die for them. But you set up boundaries or a context within which they could enjoy the blessings of eternal life and that, that being faith in your Son. So, Father, I do pray that if there's anyone here who has never trusted Christ, that they would trust him this morning and do it your way and not their way. We know that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for that, Father. So, Father, help us in the days to come to stay close to you. Keep us close to you. Keep us within the context, within the boundaries that you've set so that we might worship you well that we might serve you, not just at church, but every waking moment of every day, when we're working, when we're playing, and when we're sitting in formal worship. May it all be reverent service and worship to you. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.